Hey, deserving listeners, let's get to some patron emails. This first email is from anonymous upper tier patron. It's kind of a long email, so stick with me. My boyfriend has an ex-girlfriend, and he was together with the ex-girlfriend for eight months. She one time said that if he did not come back from a work trip, she was going to kill herself. She did a lot of things like this. She also had to have FaceTime. He, she, he also had to have FaceTime with her every night to reassure her that he did not cheat on her when they were together. So I don't know. Just chiming in here, there, there's a lot of details that she goes into, basically pointing at the fact that her boyfriend's uh, previous girlfriend uh, was very insecure and was very demanding, and uh, she believes that the ex-girlfriend had borderline. Anyway. After eight months, he could not take it anymore, and they had a pretty bad and violent breakup where she hit him in the face, and he tried to stop her from hitting her, hitting him, and they fell to the ground. This was after a party, and she had been jealous of him talking to another girl. A week later, after they broke up, she went to the police and accused him of domestic violence. I met him a few months later than that, and I have never in my life seen someone so depressed, hopeless, and suicidal. He lost his job and became so mentally ill, he could not do anything. He was convicted to eight months in prison due to this false allegation. He had to pay her compensation, and there was nothing more we could do. Though the ex-girlfriend did not have any proof of any kind— she was assessed by a psychologist who said there was a 100% probability that her mental illness had came from his abuse. Here in Norway, you can be convicted of this crime without any proof. Obviously, one cannot know for sure if he did it or not, but I have been with him for nearly four years, and I have never seen anything to the violent and psychopathic person he was described to be by the ex-girlfriend. If this was a false allegation... What could drive anyone to do such a thing? What can the consequences be mentally for the one being convicted of something he did not do? And if he did not do it, there is something wrong with the justice system here in Norway, which I think is very scary to think about. I do not often hear this, to this topic being talked about very often. End of email. Okay, so if you didn't catch that, essentially her current boyfriend, she's been this anonymous patient, she's been with someone for four years. He had a previous girlfriend who seemingly was very jealous and very demanding and very insecure when she was alone. And they went to a party, she got jealous. There was a she was hitting him. He was trying to defend himself. They fell to the ground. A week later she accused him of domestic violence. Uh, according to the anonymous patron, it was false, or at least she believes it to be false. And a psychologist assessed the ex-girlfriend and determined that there was a 100% probability that the ex-girlfriend's problems came from abuse. And he went to prison for eight months and had to pay her money and anyway, and was very depressed, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, this is a terrible situation. I mean, it's just it's just awful all the way around. And of course, I don't know if the allegations are accurate and neither does the patron cuz neither of us were there. 
So we just will just not know. We might not ever know. Um, you know, you have good reasons to believe that your boyfriend is telling the truth, and I'm not going to take that away from you. But um, the first thing I'll, I'll address is this notion of psychologists who will assess and will make these proclamations in court. And in a working court system, they will understand that uh, psychologists have a place. Friend, you know, I'm I'm trained in forensic psychology, and there's a lot of things I could talk about, you know, along those lines. But uh, in a good working justice system, they very much value forensic psychology, but they also understand that it can only go so far. There's no scientific measure, psychologically, you know, uh, speaking, or any measure, whether psychology or otherwise, that can determine if someone is lying or not. There's no lie detector test that works. And so when psychologists are testifying in court, you know, they can say things. They can testify in a number of different things. They can diagnose people. They can uh, make some speculations or some good guesses as to what diagnosis or what disorder someone might have been suffering from at the time of the crime. They can assess people to see if they're um, they're competent to stand court. There, there's all sorts of things you can do, you know, damages mentally speaking. But what psychologists and you know other people cannot do is determine if if someone making an accusation is being truthful or not. There's just no way to know, and and plenty of evidence points in the direction that no one has the ability to detect that. You can make good guesses, but you'll never really know, especially if someone is very good at deceiving. Anyway. So that's one thing I say. I don't know the justice system in Norway, but uh, you know it's something that uh, we need to look at. Obviously, you you ask another question: Why would someone make false ac- accusations? Why would someone just make up the fact that for for months and years? Because in order to get someone put into prison, you've got to consistently lie if it is a false allegation. Well, there are many possibilities, but you know, based on your story, here are the speculations. You point toward uh, you. You said in the longer email that you believe that she had borderline personality disorder. Well, there are other personality disorders that can produce the behaviors that you laid out: psychopathy, histrionic, narcissistic, as well. It's not just borderline. And of course, people with personality disorders don't inherently lie or accuse people of false crimes, but. Uh, what you know if if the if this woman did make false allegations and if the woman did for example have borderline why what how could those two things be related well for people with borderline personality disorder they have abandonment traumas and they've usually been abused and so early in life they learned that people can really hurt them deeply and that they don't matter to other people they they believe that they don't matter at all and they're very, very sensitive to rejection because they were so traumatically rejected and abandoned when they were young. And so at the drop of a hat, they will go from zero to 10 in terms of the pain. You know, think about for yourself when your partner hurts your feelings somehow, how, how fast you go from, you know, zero to five or something. Well, or how often, you know, think about how often you're hurt by your by your spouse, how often little turns of phrase or them just not responding to you or them just not considering your feelings or something. Think about 
how often that happens and how hurt you are in those moments. Well, for people with relational traumas, they're easily hurt, one, so they're hurt more often. And two, when they are hurt, it is amplified by their traumas. In the same way that when someone comes back from war, when they hear a loud noise, although for any of us, it might be a little startling, but to them, it's extremely startling because they have traumas about loud noises and death and danger. So for the borderline person, when there's a sign of abandonment and hurt, they go from zero to 10 very quickly. And so when you're that hurt, when you feel when, – when, you know, when your spouse does something or your partner does something that makes you feel a nine out of 10 on the hurt scale, on the pain scale, then you feel justified in striking back. Like uh, say in non-borderline uh, world, if you are hurt, all of us know – all of us – we don't like to talk about it this way, but all of us will have an impulse – and maybe sometimes enact revenge on our partner. For example, you are you go to a party and your partner just ignores you the whole time. And you've talked about it before and your your partner just is partying with all these other people and you're just sitting in the corner by yourself and you've and you've talked to, you know, don't ignore me at the party because I don't know anyone there. And then uh, it's time to go and you get in the car and you're on the on the drive home and y- they're very different. You're, you're upset. You're very hurt and you're very angry. Okay. And this is the 20th time this has happened in the past year. And it just seems like your partner just doesn't even care about your feelings. Okay. So you're very hurt and you might do a number of things. One is, is you might be very quiet. And this is a sort of a passive revenge, a way of the silent treatment. It's getting back at your partner uh, through silence. That's kind of revenge, uh, sort of a passive revenge. Another revenge might be uh, the next time you're at a party, you ignore them. And then afterwards, they're like, how come you ignore me? And you're like, well, now you know how it feels. Uh, Another revenge you you might say, you, you might try to hurt their feelings on the way home. This isn't super conscious, but you might say to your partner, you are the worst partner on the planet. You know, you are a terrible human being. You've done this to me 20 times. You're a terrible person. Okay. Why would you call your partner a terrible person or some other name along those lines? Well, or, or you might say you're just like your father, even though you know that's going to hurt him or something. So this is revenge. And we don't usually frame it that way. We usually frame it as, well, I'm just telling him how I feel or I'm just telling her how I feel. But really, you know, there's revenge in there and that's okay. It's normal. Well, if you are frequently hurt and your hurt is, you know, um, amplified by your past traumas of being hurt, such as borderline disorder, then your revenge is going to be bigger. And so – when you are so hurt by someone, it can feel justified to take it to this level where it's just like, well, if he's going to do that to me, then I'm going to get him back. And it's not going to feel like I'm balancing the scales completely, but at least I'm going to get a little bit of balance. And so to the to the person with relational traumas to make false allegations, false accusations consistently over time – they, it might actually feel to them like they are balancing the scales because it, to them, they feel as though the other person 
hurt them in such blatant, uncaring ways. Like there's a possibility, anonymous patron, that your your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend, if you heard her story, like you were her friend or something, there's a possibility, you you know, she might say um, something like this is just completely made up possibility, but she might say something like this. So that man, he lied to me constantly. He lied to me about calling me. He lied to me about his work trips. He purposely lied to me all the time. He tricked me and he gaslit me into thinking that he, that he loved me when he didn't. He was a psychopath, that guy. And we were at this party one time and I, you know, I was telling him that I didn't appreciate him cheating on me right in front of my face at the party. And so um, I, you know, and then, and then he and I got into a fight and he's a lot bigger than me. And, and he hurt me. He physically hurt me. He's a scary guy. I mean, I saw a look in his eye and we broke up. And then a week later I was talking with a friend and my friend said, Hey, you, you know, you got to stand up to that. You can't just let someone, a psychopath do that to you for eight months and then be violent with you. There are consequences. There's laws. And so I called the police. Okay. Now I don't know, but there's a possibility that that's how she sees the world because when, which leads me to my second point, which is, well, not my second point, but another part of this, which is that when you have, these disorders, it it completely changes your perspective and distorts it. One one way to think about personality disorders is that it is a disorder of perception. So if you have avoidant personality disorder, your distorted perception is that everyone knows that you are stupid. You know, avoidant personality disorder, people avoid uh, social situations because they believe deep down that they're broken and that everyone can see that even though that's not true. And so the perception is broken there. The perception is distorted like to the disordered level. It's a pervasive personality distortion, okay? So with narcissistic personality disorder, they will believe that on one hand, they are absolutely the most special, awesome, most important entitled people on the planet. They don't. They don't sort of purposely distort their life. They don't consciously distort their life. They genuinely believe that they are better than other people. And the reason why they believe that is because on the other hand, they believe they're worthless. But um, so it's a problem of distortion. It's not a problem of just like a decision. You know, these people often will characterize people with personality disorders as if they have a choice. But it it's almost like a blindness, if you will. Anyway, with borderline, there it, it's the higher up on the spectrum you are, which if this person did have it, it sounds like they were higher up on the spectrum. Of course, I don't know because all this could be lies. But uh, people higher up on the spectrum, they will absolutely distort reality. And that's why it's called borderline because borderline uh, originally the psychoanalysts that were observing these sorts of people – they noticed that they were they were in a sense psychotic, meaning delusional. Uh, for people suffering from psychosis, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, they will hear voices. They'll believe they're the devil, or that they're a god, or that aliens are speaking to them. You know, we all understand that. Well, 
with people with borderline personality disorder at the high end, they will distort reality to such an extent that the observers, as they were first observing this personality, they were like, my goodness, this person seems almost borderline psychotic. They seem borderline schizophrenic, but not quite schizophrenic because it's just about relationships. You know, they don't think they're Napoleon, but they they very much distort reality. And let me give you an example. So I, I had a client once years and years ago, and I, I always think about this example because it's, it's so poignant to, to this. It, well, I mean, I'll give two examples. And I'm changing details about this to you know hide the identity. But so this this one woman, she was in therapy, and uh, it was the end of a session, and there was a kind of a tense moment. You know, she she was triggered, and and I I knew that, and I I was trying to do my best to take care of her in the moment emotionally, but it was the end of the session, and she had to leave, and so then she canceled. Uh, the appointment, our you know appointments, and I knew from experience. I was like, oh, okay, uh, we have a relationship rupture of some kind. So I reached out to her and said, um, you know, let's have another session, and and let me let me apologize for what happened because I I didn't know what was wrong, but I figured some some had happened. So she comes in second session, and we start talking, and she says, she says, yeah, well. I decided I wasn't ever going to see you again. And I had determined she had borderline. And, uh, I, you know, she's saying, I decided I was never going to see you again. It's like, okay, well, why? And she said, well, because of what you said last session, of course. And I said, well, what did I say? And she said, you, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like she said to me, you told me that I was a piece of shit or something like that. It, was, I mean, it wasn't that severe. It was something, something in that direction, though. It was something just horrible that if I heard from my therapist, I would fire him too, you know? <laughs> like, uh, it was a horrible thing that she thought I had said, and she was convinced. And in the beginning, I was like, oh, no, no, I didn't say that. You must have been mistaken. I, I would never say anything like that. She was not convinced. She was like, no, 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 you did say that. You absolutely said it. Now, you know, memory is weird, so it's possible that my memory was off. But I can guarantee you that I never said what she thought I said. One, because I've never said such a thing to any client. And two, I've never even thought it. The thing that she said said that I said, I've never even thought about a client. It was something so awful. And I just thought, you must have misheard me. You know, but here's the thing. I've treated enough people with borderline to know that when they are hurt, you know, in the in the moment, they're a ten out of ten. They are spiking hard with their complex PTSD. And they are seeing the world through that traumatic lens. And it is no joke. And so as I'm saying things to them. They literally are hearing different sentences, not in a psychotic sense, but in an emotional sense. In the same way that whenever you get into a fight with a spouse, your spouse will say things like, well, you said this. And you're thinking, I did not say that. That's impossible. Okay, well, who's right? Well, one of you is wrong, right? Or both of you are wrong. Well, one of you is wrong. <laughs> you know, Say your spouse says, you know, the last time we got in a fight – you said, you called me a name. You called me an a-hole. 
and you shouldn't call your wife an a-hole or something. And you're just like, I, I did not call you an, an asshole. That's just not possible for me. Well, it's possible that uh, one person or both is remembering it through an emotional lens. It happens all the time. This is, this is a universal thing in fighting. None of us remember a, a past conflict if, if we are being triggered. We don't remember the fight accurately. That's why it's sometimes interesting to record your fights because you're like, oh, I don't remember saying that. That sounds awful. Or that tone, the tone I'm using sounds awful now in the light of day. Anyway, so if you have abandonment trauma, then that effect that is very normal to humans is going to be amplified. And they are going to believe things that, you know, in their core, they're going to be like, no, 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 you said da, 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 even though that never happened. So it's possible that anonymous patron, your partner's ex-girlfriend, has memories that justify making false allegations or even memories of abuse that actually never happened because she suffers from severe borderline and, again, borderline psychotic, right? And that could be another reason. Of course, I don't know and I couldn't know and you can't know because – you would never have a chance to assess this person. This is all just speculation. Another possibility, the second, so in addition to, so that that's whole like a, a distorted personality disorder category. The second reason that I could imagine is there's no personality disorder, but the person just wanted revenge. They simply just wanted to get back at someone. Certainly that happens. Uh, the third thing is that she wanted sympathy. Again, no disorder. She just wanted sympathy. Another is that she had a distorted memory from a non-personality you know, personality disorder way. Um, another possible reason, which doesn't seem likely, is that she was brainwashed by the police. We've seen this in documentaries before. Uh, under questioning, sometimes police officers with an agenda can get people to say or believe anything. And there's no evidence that that happened in this situation, but you know, it certainly could happen. So the other question you ask anonymous upper tier patron is, you know, what are the mental consequences to the innocent who get accused of these sorts of things? Well, the sky's the limit. Uh, Yeah, depression, PTSD, anxiety, suicidality. It's totally demoralizing to be accused of something you didn't do and to have people believe that person and to have the justice system believe that person and then to have that the justice system throw you in prison for something you didn't do. And this happens all the time. It's not just for, you know, boyfriends suffering in this way, this happens all the time based on profiling or race or, you know, false statements or, um, you know, mistaken identity. Many people go to prison for things they didn't do. It ha- we, we see it happen all the time. And right now, there is a, a sizable minority of people in prison that did not do what they were convicted of doing. And including if your boyfriend is innocent, including your boyfriend that went to prison. Um, in Norway. And yeah, it just, it's demoralizing. If you've ever been in those shoes as someone who is being accused of something like this, it's just, because it's not only the crime and going to prison, but it's also the stigma that out there in the world is this potentially public record that you are an abuser of women to the extent that you went to prison for eight months. That's a hard thing to that's a hard monkey to get off your back you know what i mean hard monkey (laughs) tenacious monkey to get off your back to use the metaphor correctly anyway uh, it's just suffering all the way around 
one, if your boyfriend is innocent, that is just awful. And for you to go through that with him unnecessarily, that's also awful. But to the ex-girlfriend, if she did make a false allegation, the amount of trauma and abuse and abandonment that she went through when she was young is is probably even worse than what you guys went through. And and that's the bigger picture here that I see, that it all starts in the beginning. One thing you can do is say, well, we got to get this ex-girlfriend and show her what's what. Well, she if she did suffer from a disorder that distorted her perceptions and amplified her hurt and amplified her revenge response, well, that's not her fault. It was what she went through when she was a young kid. And of course, whoever did that to her probably wasn't their quote-unquote fault. It was their upbringing that led to their personality, that led to their parenting style or their drug addiction or whatever it was. It doesn't let people off the hook. And I know there are victims out there listening and they might be getting up in arms and, you know, about ready to email me some nasty thing. But, you know, I I get it. I, I mean, to be a victim is you know, it's real and it's unfair and we need justice. I mean, take it from me. I, I am very justice oriented. And if this ex-girlfriend is lying and did lie, and if I was in power and I could somehow determine that, uh, I would throw the book at her to do such a thing to someone is a criminal act. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I doesn't let her off the hook, but if we're going to put an end systemically to this sort of thing and all the other things, drug addiction problems, petty crime, other domestic violence instances, narcissistic politicians, then we have to start in the beginning. We have to help parents who have young children parent more effectively. We have to help them economically. We have to help them with parenting skills. We have to help them with their own drug addiction, potentially with their own emotional issues with their own um, support system. And there are programs that do this. And so if we as listeners are upset about this whole situation, there are things that we can do to prevent this from happening in the beginning and stop the chain of abuse from happening over and over again. Because if this ex-girlfriend is as disordered as, um, you know, it seems it's possible, of course, we don't know, but let's say she does suffer from upper, you know, upper range borderline personality disorder when and if she has kids it's going to affect her parenting and then those kids are going to have some other issue that they're going to grow up with and the cycle just continues but if the ex-girlfriend say she does have a full-blown disorder were to get compassionate caring help and support and treatment that's focused that specialized in relational traumas then we could mitigate it and the next generation would benefit. And then that generation would get their therapy and we would just like, you know, getting rid of a virus in a population ever so slowly, we would be able to get rid of the cycle of abuse and abandonment and trauma, not get rid of, but significantly reduce it. Right. And and this, this is something we've known for decades and people have been researching it. And, and, you know, every once in a while I get on the soapbox, but just to remind everyone, <laughs> That if we had politicians that understood this and if we had voters that understood this, it wouldn't take that much money 
you would just have to pay people not that much because a lot of people would do this for you know pretty low pay, and they would just administer these programs for parents with young kids. That would help the parents. That would help the kids. That would give them whatever sort of trauma therapy they needed or whatever they you know support systems they needed, financial help, so that they could spend more time with their kids instead of working th- you know three jobs a week or something. So it wouldn't cost that much money. If we just didn't pay for, say, 10% of the military budget, we could fund all sorts of programs like this and essentially get rid of, I don't know, 50% of the trauma in our society. Wouldn't that be great? And then crime goes down and unemployment goes down, addiction goes down, uh, you know, crazy ex-boyfriends and girlfriends go down. (laughs) It it all goes down. Anyway. Anyway. I'll get off my soapbox. All right, let's take a break and read another email. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, this next email is from upper tier patron Angel from Tucson or Angel from Tucson. Wanted me to talk about corrective experiences. So there's a lot I could say, but just to uh, in short – the topic or the concept of corrective experiences began in psychoanalysis around – I have the book here where it originated from uh, – 1946 um, by Alexander, Franz Alexander and Thomas Morton French, I believe. I, you know, I believe that they were the ones who originated it. But essentially uh, in the 40s, there was this notion that was emerging out of psychoanalysis and object relations and self-psychology and all these other ideas that in therapy, if we were going to help people, we had to work with counter-transference transference, meaning that the client comes with relational traumas to the therapy office. And Will trans if the relationship is intense enough with the therapist and client, the the therap- the client will eventually start to uh, transfer the concerns and feelings and thoughts they had towards those who hurt them to their to their therapist. For example, if you were neglected emotionally by your parents in general, you know they worked all the time or they were alcoholic or something. You know, they, just, they didn't abuse you so much. They were just like just never around. And you just felt alone and uh, rejected and isolated and reject, you know, just never cared about, not given enough attention. And you go to therapy because you know something's up and, and you, uh, as time goes on, as the relationship intensifies, you start to transfer those thoughts, feelings onto your, you know, the, 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 the feel, when you were five years old and 10 years old, you were very hurt by your parents. You might not have consciously knew it so much, but you were hurt. You were neglected and you were angry at them and you wanted to yell at them because of how neglectful they were. Okay. But you never did or you did rarely because they weren't listening anyway. And so you go to therapy and you start to transfer those feelings onto your therapist and you start to have these thoughts as a client. You're like, you know what? My therapist doesn't really care. You know, I have to pay my therapist to listen to me. Yeah, you know what? He he probably just, you know, I'm just one of many clients. He doesn't really care. 
um, you know, he forgot that one detail of my life. That must mean he's not really listening. You know, I bet you he doesn't even really want me around. I bet you he thinks that I'm a bad client. I bet you he thinks that um, he, you know, whatever. You know, these are the thoughts that you have in your mind, okay? This is a distortion in all likelihood because your therapist probably does care about you. But you're transferring and, and you're displacing the thoughts and feelings and reactivity you naturally have towards your parents for good reason onto your therapist. This is what transference is, okay? And through this process, you subtly behave towards the therapist in a way that actually is attempting through projective identification to elicit the response from the, from the therapist. And, and uh, to the neglected patient, they will do this with everyone in their life, whether it's a therapist or not. But if we're just going to stick it to the therapist um, relationship. Uh, so – you know, the client is having these thoughts. Oh, you know, I'm sure he doesn't like me. I'm sure he just rejects me. I'm sure he's not really listening. He doesn't, you know, he's just in it for the money. And then uh, the client might, uh, and now, so the client is trying to get the the therapist unconsciously to neglect them. And so what the, the client might do is to um, not really ask the therapist for any, not be vulnerable. So the, the client will sit down and just talk about surface level things, you know, just like boring things and not emotional things. And the client might not actually ask the therapist for any help, really. You know, the, the client might just sit down and sort of blab about surface level things. And, and what that does to the therapist subtly, and the client understands this subconsciously, but not consciously usually, is that the, the therapist is sitting there going, um, why is this client just downloading their boring details of their life to me? Am I, am I a good therapist? Because I feel like I'm not doing any good here. I kind of feel like this client doesn't even want me to help them. The client is never vulnerable. The client never asks me any questions. The client doesn't even seem to care that I'm here. The client sits down and just kind of blabs and doesn't really involve me in their life. And so, and, and whenever I try to get involved, the, the client rejects me. Okay, this is from the therapist counter-transference side, counter to the transference, okay? And the therapist, uh, if, if they don't have a good awareness and they don't have a management system and they don't go to their own therapy, they don't have their own con- consultants to talk about this sort of thing, they can get lost in their counter-transference and they'll say, you know what? I don't feel very good when I'm treating this client. I feel like this client is rejecting me. I feel like this client isn't in therapy for the right reasons because they don't, they never open up. And whenever I try to get them to open up, they never open up. So I'm just going to sit and, you know, I'm just going to sit back and, you know, I'll listen, but I'm not going to be very enthusiastic about it because I'm being treated like crap here. They might even make these conclusions like, you know, this guy is narcissistic. He's just, you know, you know, the therapist is thinking, my client, you know, that my client is so into themselves or my client is just a, a douchebag that doesn't like women or whatever sort of conclusion you have. Okay, so this facilitates the the full projective identification process. You know, the, the client has tried to make you into a neglecting other and subtly socialized you to, to adopt a perspective and a reactivity that will – end up rejecting the client. Okay. So what uh, Alexander, what Franz Alexander and Thomas Morton French came up with in 1946 was 
this this concept called the corrective emotional experience. And what they found was that you do, you needed to do the opposite. So you needed to notice that. And I I, I don't know if I have this completely right in terms of the history um, and the names and the times. So don't quote me on this, but pretty sure this is right. Anyway, uh, I know the gist of this is true in that they, they had this thing called corrective emotional experience was that uh, you needed to do the opposite. It was very clear. It was just like whatever, you, whatever your counter-transference is sort of compelling you to do as a therapist, you need to do the opposite. So your counter-transference is to reject the client. Your counter-transference is to say, I don't like this client. Your counter-transference is to say, this client doesn't want me in their life. Okay. So as a therapist, you need to wrestle with that, figure it out, and then you do the opposite, which is to accept the client and love the client and assume that the client wants to be vulnerable but can't be vulnerable. And so you just – instead of pulling away, you just need to move in. Instead of not listening, you need to listen even harder, okay? And the idea was was that it, it proves this um, – you know, w- one way of looking at projective identification and transference, counter-transference is that it's a test, the client is putting the therapist through a test. The client is hoping that the therapist will pass the test and do the opposite. You know, the client is unconsciously trying to see, are you going to neglect me the way my parents neglected me? And the only way I'm really going to know is if I push you so far away subconsciously that you'll be very tempted to reject me. But if you don't reject me after going through such a test, then I'll know that you aren't going to reject me and I can trust you and I, and I will feel safe and it will be corrective for me. It will be you know, uh, healing for me. So the corrective emotional experience was simply do the opposite. Well, this corrective emotional experience concept uh, was uh, iterated upon and, and expanded on later, particularly through interpersonal therapy, intersubjective therapy um, and relational psychoanalysis, this sort of thing. By just calling, they kept calling them corrective emotional experiences, but they said it's not just do the opposite of what the transference is compelling you to do or the projective identification is compelling you to do. It's figure out what corrective experience uh, needs to occur for this client such that the object relations will change, meaning they're, they're, concept of self and other will change is one. There's a lot of different ways to word it. But so you would look at the client who believes that they are rejectable, believes that other people can't be trusted. And by acting in a very trustworthy and non-neglectful way, in a very warm, very attentive, attuned way, that the object relations will change in the person's mind. In, in that the ideas of other people and themselves will change such that they will be more trusting of other people and less likely to engage in projective identification with another sort of sneaky ways of pushing people away from them in the future, and they will have better relationships outside of therapy. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> if you've listened to me for a long time, I'm guessing it does. But if this is the first time you've heard me talk about this, I'm guessing it's a little confusing. But uh, I have boiled down. I've I, I've given a lot of thought to all the theories, hundred you know, hundreds of theories, and 
I believe that therapy comes down to two things. All the theories essentially address this in some way. Some emphasize one or the other, one over the other, but there are two things. One is awareness and insight. This is the um, analysis, interpretation, cognitive therapy, sometimes behavioral therapy, sometimes systems, sometimes solution focused. But they are uh, therapies that involve helping the client understand their world, their relationships, their own psychologies, uh, their own reactivity, their own defenses, so that they can have more power over it. Um, so, for example, with the neglected trauma client, um, you you might be able to teach the person. Look, you know, I feel like you're pushing. You know, the therapist. This is me as a therapist. I might say, I feel like you're pushing me away by talking about very surface level things. I, I you you can continue to talk about surface level things, and I will absolutely listen. But I just want you to know that. I'm here to listen to whatever you want to tell me, even the scary things, even the things that you think I might not want to hear about because that's, you know, I care about you. And I, I, I worry sometimes that you and I agree to talk about surface level things because it's fun and safe, but there's so much other thing. Okay. So by saying this to the client, I'm hoping that the client can go, Oh, is that what I do? Do I push people away? What what can I do with vulnerability in sessions? You know, do I do this with everyone? Am I making assumptions about other people? Okay, so that's all awareness and interpretation. Okay, that's the one pillar of therapy. The other pillar of therapy is corrective experiences, healing. And so by me being attuned to the client over time experientially, the client learns experientially because I could tell the client, look, you can trust other people. It's a totally different thing if I actually – act in a very trustworthy way, not act, but I am trustworthy in my soul with this client, that the client goes, wow, okay, I know he said that I could trust him, but now I know I can trust him. Like, I get it. I can trust him. Maybe I can trust other people now. Okay. Um, or trauma therapy, healing from your trauma, exposure therapy is another healing experiential experience, if you will. So so anyway, the, the corrective experiences, um, the topic is literally half of therapy. And for some clients, it's 90% of the therapy. For, for many clients that I work with, 90% of the therapy is corrective experiences. And sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, when I'm treating couples, because I, I treat individuals and couples at this point in my career, adults, I used to treat t teenagers and kids and families, but I don't anymore for whatever reason. But couples, I will facilitate corrective experiences between the two of them. So if, for example, uh, you have a gay couple and husband number one it has a history of abandonment and physical abuse and he is very easily hurt and very afraid of anger, I would have husband number two – uh, as he, as husband or two gets angry, I would have him express it, his his anger in a way that was non-scary to husband number one. Express it in a way that had warmth and attunement, such that husband number one, who has the anger trauma and the you know because he had an angry father or something, he can learn. Oh, someone can be angry at me and still not have it be abusive, and. 
and through that experience, through that corrective experience, corrective emotional experience, if you will, husband number one can learn, oh, when my spouse, when my husband is angry at me, that doesn't mean he is going to hurt me. And it doesn't mean that the world's coming to an end. It just means that he's angry. But you have, you can, you can hear that, you know, you can tell husband number one, just because someone's angry doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. That can only, that can go a certain, you know, it's cognitive therapy. It's, it's to some extent narrative therapy. There, there are things you can do in that realm for sure. And it's very powerful to experience human beings that are close to you as they're getting angry. And then they prove to you that the, the anger doesn't also come with it danger and that the person can be angry and safe at the same time. And by experiencing that, not only does your mind go, oh, I now have learned something different, but your body learns something different. And that when, uh, when I think about corrective experiences, that's often what I am thinking about is like we're trying to get beyond your conscious mind to your unconscious mind to the things you don't have control over. Uh, the the um, analogy, uh, the analogous brain uh, situation, <laughs> brain process that I will sometimes bring up with clients and with you, the listeners, is like if you've ever gone snorkeling, the first time you did the snorkel, you put the snorkel in your mouth and you're breathing and then you stick your face under the water and you immediately stop breathing because your 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 brain is like, wait a second, your face is underwater. Do not breathe in. You will die. But your conscious mind is like, hey, hey, body, breathe because the snorkel is in your mouth. You know, yeah, your face is underwater, but you can breathe. The snorkel will save you. <laughs> so your conscious mind is like, dude, I can do this, but your body is saying, no, 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 okay? Only by very slowly acclimating, and you, you, know, you have to go through that exposure acclimation process, can your body breathe underwater in a free way with a snorkel? Well, in the same way, and, and there's no amount of coaching that I can do to someone before they put their face, you know, I could say, believe in the snorkel, believe in the snorkel. As soon as they put their head in, if it's the first time they've ever snorkeled, the first time they put their face underwater, their, their body will go, <gasps> I'm not, you know, it's just not going to happen because your body has an autonomic response of just not breathing when your face is submerged like that. Not always, but I hope you get my, my sort of analogy here. You know, you can tell someone people can be trusted. Not everyone is evil. Anger doesn't equal danger. You can say those kinds of things and it can help, but it's so much more powerful to have it, to experience it, you know, and, and your body experiences it. Your body's like, because, you know, if when you're, when you're telling the snorkeler to believe in the snorkel, the rest of the body is going, yeah, 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 I'll believe it when I see it, pal. Your prefrontal cortex is like, okay, I believe you because, you know, it makes sense. Snorkel works. But the rest of the body is like, mm-mm, not believing it. So you tell a client, you can trust other people. Other people are good. The conscious mind is like, okay, I think my therapist is making a good point. But the rest of the body is like, mm-mm, no, no, no. <laughs> I know through experience that people cannot be trusted. So uh, now, so that's where the second pillar of therapy comes in, which is the corrective experience the experiential learning that your body has to go through to learn what it needs to learn 
to be happy or to suffer less and to have better relationships. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This last email is from upper tier patron Erin. She writes, I love your show and have never gone to therapy before, but now I want to go to therapy because of your show. However, I am trying to become a law enforcement officer and going to therapy will affect my background investigation, even though it makes sense for everyone to go to therapy, right? Is there any way to get around this, like receiving therapy, not through your insurance? Is there any way to protect your personal information? End of email. So I've actually dealt with this before, and I'm not super knowledgeable, or I should say I'm not knowledgeable about all the ins and outs of this for sure. But there are some things you can do, like what you said is is not um, going through insurance. So let me talk about that for a second. I'm guessing you're bringing this up because you heard about this. So when you go to therapy, so I'll just talk about me. When someone comes to therapy with, well, actually, I need to go back about it a couple years because I don't accept insurance anymore. Um, And the reason I don't accept insurance anymore is because insurances make me accept a lower rate than what what I charge. And I'm just at the point in my career where I just don't want to do that. But for the first, I don't know, 20 years, I... I did take insurance. Anyway, so when I took insurance, if you came to me and you, you know, Primera Blue Cross is a, is a Seattle, is a Washington insurance. And so someone comes to me from, with Primera Blue Cross and they're like, okay, uh, I want therapy and here's what I want to work on. And I would say, okay, well, do you want your insurance to pay for it? And they'd be like, okay, yeah. I'd say, well, in order for me to get your insurance to pay for it, I need to diagnose you with something that is, quote, unquote, medically necessary. And only then will your insurance pay for it. And so I need to assess you and diagnose you with something. And if we can't find anything to legitimately diagnose you with, then I cannot get your insurance to pay for it, and you're not going to be able to use your insurance. And so they would say, okay, and I would – you know, say, all right, well, let's do an assessment. And I would assess them. And then I would say, okay, well, it sounds like you qualify for this diagnosis. This is what this diagnosis means. You know, say it's major depressive disorder. I'd say it's, you, you qualify for major depressive disorder. And this is what it means. And uh, this is the treatment that I would administer to you. Um, usually it wasn't the only, you know, I I ne- almost never, if not, if if ever, uh, focused my therapy on the diagnosis. It, the diagnosis was part of it, but you know, uh, I'm a holistic therapist, and so I would look at the whole person and everything that they wanted to talk about. Obviously, if they have major depressive disorder, that's a topic to talk about, but it's not the only thing usually that people come to come to me for. Anyway, so I would explain to them, you know, that's the diagnosis, and and by the way, clinicians out there, I recommend you do you do this because I find it horrific that. Um, a lot of clients out there don't even know what they were diagnosed with. You know, there's a lot of clients out there who have been diagnosed by their therapist for this very reason, because in order to get insurance to pay, you always have to have a diagnosis in the States anyway. And many clients don't even know what they were diagnosed with. (laughs) I just find that to be ridiculous. Like clients should know their diagnosis, you know, and sometimes that can be a few sessions of discussion, but they deserve to know. Anyway, I consider it an ethical issue, honestly. So, uh, so I would go, I'd go over that with them and I'd say, all right, so here, here's the deal. It, when I send in a claim to the insurance um, company, you know, Premier Blue Cross, 
it'll have the date of service. It'll have the code of service that will essentially be a code of one hour of therapy, and it'll have a diagnosis. And that's what's going to be on the claim. It won't have any of the progress notes or any details. It'll just have this is what I'm treating. You know, I'm treating this person for a major depressive disorder. We met on this date for an hour. How do you feel about that? Well, some people, most people are like, I don't care. It's fine. But some people are like, wait, so you're going to you're going to tell my medical insurance and it's going to be a part of some computer bank somewhere permanently that I have major depressive disorder. I mean, yeah, that that's that's what will happen. It it rarely has any kind of consequence if you don't work in law enforcement or the military or something or you're not a contractor for the military or governmental jobs, CIA, these kinds of FBI. If you don't have a job like that, if you just have, you know, regular job, regular sort of job, then it's rarely going to uh, be of consequence at all. You know, there can be consequences, but, you know, it's not my area. Um, and a lot of people, oh, okay, that sounds fine. But some people will be like, well, uh, actually, I work for a company that contracts with the military. And if somehow it gets out uh, that I have this disorder, you know, that could be a problem for me. Or they might say, I'm going through a custody battle right now, and my ex is trying to prove that I'm a terrible parent, and I don't want to give my ex any kind of ammunition. So let's let's not include that. Now, it you know, an ex uh, spouse is not likely to gain access to that diagnosis, but some people are just like, ah, let's just play it safe. Okay. So in those situations, I would say, okay, well, here's the option. Uh, I don't. Um, I will diagnose you, but it will be in my mind. <laughs> but in the in the client file, I will not officially diagnose you because there's no need for that because we're not using insurance and you're just going to private pay. You're going to pay me directly. We're not going to go through insurance. You're just going to pay me my fee in cash or credit card or whatever. And therefore, I don't have to send anything to anyone. I don't have to send a claim to the insurance and I don't have to officially diagnose you. Now, I'm going to assess you, and if you're depressed, I'm going to make note of that. But I'm not necessarily going to diagnose you officially with major depressive disorder because there's no purpose in that. I, we might target your depression in general, but determining whether or not you qualify for a DSM diagnosis isn't important because uh, I'm going to treat the whole you, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so for some people, uh, such as yourself, Aaron, uh, becoming law enforcement – um, and you're like, uh, it could be a problem in my background check if I have this on record somewhere, then paying someone directly and having a very explicit conversation with the therapist about this uh, would be in order. You know, you, you want to – don't depend on your therapist to bring this up because some therapists might not. So you just have to tell them, look, I'm going into law enforcement. I don't want any record that will hurt that process. I don't plan on, you know, this – uh, therapy file being pulled, but there's a possibility, you know, there's a possibility, I don't know, but there's a possibility that when you apply, say it's like CIA or something, that the CIA is like, have you ever been to therapy before? And you would, you know, perjure yourself to say no, right? So you're like, um, yeah, I've, I've been to therapy before. And they're like, well, you're going to have to get us those records. And you, you just have to ask your therapist to pull the whole file, and you just got to hand over the file to CIA. Now, I don't know. Uh, this isn't my area. 
Um, I, I've literally only had this happen a couple times. So maybe consult with a lawyer as well beforehand or a law enforcement officer to find out what the process is in your jurisdiction. You know, if you're planning on um, applying to a particular law enforcement agency, ask them what their sort of policies are. Because I'm guessing some law enforcement agencies um, are totally fine with you having a past diagnosis and they don't flip out about it. Because, of course, why would they? Half of people at some point will qualify for a DSM diagnosis. Does that mean half of the United States citizens re cannot be a law enforcement officer? No. Uh, having having major depressive disorders not mean that you can't be a good you know police officer. It's ridiculous. Uh, a very good percentage of police officers that, who are effective have all sorts of uh, you know mental uh, issues. Now, some mental issues we could imagine interfering, but um, not. Uh, just as a matter of course, like you wouldn't just be able to look at a diagnosis and go, okay, that person is completely unable to be a law enforcement officer. Even things like schizophrenia, you can treat schizophrenia, you can have manage, you know, manageable sy- symptoms. So you really just have to – knowing a diagnosis doesn't tell you anything. It, it just might be a jumping off point to find out more, right? And certainly we can know situations where someone doesn't qualify for a DSM diagnosis and would be a terrible law enforcement officer because of their attitudes or racism or something. Anyway, so so that's in brief what I would say. Um, I would uh, – Aaron, I would – again, I would talk with a law enforcement officer about policy. I would – once you start therapy, I would tell them your concerns and maybe even ask your therapist to look into it. You know, he's like, can you go, can you look in, can you consult? Or maybe is there someone I can hire? Maybe, you know, because there are people that you can hire. Uh, like I've had people on the show before, um, Tiffany Chuom and uh, Francis Shopik. They are both experts, or at least they know where to look often, or they know who to refer to. You can actually reach out to them. Uh, and, you could hire them for an hour or two of consultation and they could actually look up all the details to make sure that you go into this with, you know, your the information you deserve because you don't want to jeopardize your law enforcement career. Anyway. All right. Well, let's see if there's another email here. All right. This next email is kind of relevant to what we've been talking about in this episode. Anonymous upper tier patron writes in and says, I've listened to your deep dive on borderline personality disorder. I just started a job as a case manager at a behavioral health clinic. When in training, a lead therapist was talking about how if she thought a patient was borderline, then she would not tell the patient what she thought that they were borderline. She says she would never tell them that they were borderline. Another therapist at the the clinic agreed with her. Is this the standard Do the patients not have a right to know? Since they're so likely to drop out of therapy, wouldn't they just leave not knowing they have borderline and how to work on it? End of email. Yeah, this is um, upsetting and common. I I completely have been in your shoes before, anonymous patron, in consultations, in meetings, in agencies. uh, People have just the dumbest ideas about borderline. It's really ridiculous. So as I was talking about earlier, uh, if you have 
you know, beyond a certain threshold. You know, to be clear, there are a lot of people diagnosed with borderline either by a therapist or even self-diagnosed. I know a lot of you listeners have been diagnosed with borderline or self-diagnosed with borderline. And it, just knowing that someone is on the spectrum of borderline doesn't really tell you much about anything. Um, so uh, to say that someone has borderline and to be f- afraid of them is really ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so can someone with borderline be a scary person? Absolutely. There are some borderline people. There are some histrionic people. There are some psychopathic people. There are some narcissistic people. There are some passive-aggressive people. There are some uh, other personality disorders, paranoid personality, uh, who uh, can be very scary. Can any of those personality disorders be present with someone and have that person not be scary? Absolutely. I have friends who are borderline that I, or narcissistic personality disorder whom are wonderful people. <laughs> so just knowing that someone's borderline doesn't say anything, okay? So there's that. Um, the other thing I'll say is that there's this uh, simplistic notion among some clinicians that borderline is essentially a, syno- a, a synonym with uh, a very difficult client, which is just not true. You, Certainly some difficult clients suffer from borderline, but many difficult clients are difficult for other reasons, okay? It's also become synonymous with clients who want to sue their uh, therapists. You'll hear this. You'll hear like, well, you know, all borderlines, they want to sue their therapists. Or, oh, no, we have a client who wants to sue the agency. She must be borderline. And it's like, huh? <laughs> I mean, maybe. I su- have you assessed the person? Because, you know, personality disorders are pretty complex. Plus, have you considered the client might actually have a legitimate cause to sue you? Like, sometimes people are mistreated at agencies. But anyway. So, you know, uh, I've seen this before a lot. And it's, it's re- as a person who specializes in borderline and has from the very early part of my career – I have I have heard so many people say this kind of bullshit and it it it's weird because it's sort of a um I don't know how do I describe this. So well I'll just tell you an anecdote. So I'll, the last time I remember this happening was I don't know it's probably like 6 years ago and I'm, I I was working at an agency and uh and I heard this sort of thing being said and I wasn't in power, you know, I was just a regular colleague of these people and they said this something similar to that you're know, like oh well she must have been borderline or something you know some kind of uh, derogatory thing or i can't remember what it was it was some derogatory thing about a client that may or may not have had borderline and i immediately you know i was well into my career at this point i'd been a professor you know this was just six years ago so i was i was a senior clinician i was a podcaster <laughs> I was an advocate for destigmatizing personality disorders, and yet I didn't say a single word. And, you know, a lot of people agreed with the stigmatizing individual, and I didn't say anything. Now, you know, you could say I'm a weakling, but I've done that a lot, and I've seen that a lot. And the I think what happens is when you're in a group of people – and there's a, a thought that gets floated out there. And the consensus in the group seems to be like, well, that's, that's what we believe as a, you know, our profession believes that thing. 
anyone who opposes that belief system will be silent because they're afraid of being opposed by the group. You know, you, 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 no one wants to be the, the only person to stand up and say, all y'all are wrong, <laughs> right? Um, now, actually, when I think back, I think I did actually speak up at one point about it. Um, but it didn't go well, if I remember right. Anyway, uh, so uh, anonymous upper tier patron, it's possible that when you're at this training and the lead therapist was talking crap about borderline people and then one other person said, yeah, I agree. It's possible there are a lot of other people in the room that were like, um, I don't agree with that. So uh, we don't necessarily look towards silent people as agreeing, Okay. So I don't know, but I've seen this a lot. Yeah, it, it's it's a ridiculous thing. Now, can, again, people, as I was talking about earlier, who have relational traumas and abandonment traumas, can they be hurt easily? Yes. Can they take revenge because they feel like it is justified? Because it, we all take revenge in, when we believe it's justified and we're often wrong, but – uh, can someone who is particularly sensitive and you know has particular traumas around this sort of thing get triggered to the point of uh, you know attacking an agency or a therapist? Yes, it's happened. I treat borderline clients and narcissistic clients and histrionic clients. I have been attacked repeatedly. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you stories. Uh, you know, like that client I was talking about earlier who accused me of saying something awful. She didn't just inform me. She was attacking me. She was calling me a terrible therapist. And she was essentially saying I abused her in the previous session. And she did not mince words, right? And it was scary to me. It, You know, my heart was racing. It, it was an awful experience, even though I'm an expert and have been down this road a billion times. You just can't avoid the human part of that that interaction, of this person who I'm trying to help hates me right now and is accusing me of doing terrible, terrible things and believes I did terrible, terrible things. It is, it is a dysregulating experience. It's awful. So there are a lot of therapists out there who have been through those difficult moments and have, as a, as a matter of trying to salvage their career or salvage their self-esteem or salvage their well-being, they've just decided, oh, borderlines are terrible and I reject them. And what I always tell my students, because, you know, every one of my supervisees eventually has a borderline client and they run into this, you know, I can prepare them all that, all I want, right? I can give them all the knowledge. Okay, you're going to have a borderline client. This is what it's going to look like. This is what your counter-transference is going to look like. This is what your, this is what the transference is going to look like. They're going to make you feel like crap. I can teach them about projective identification and, you know, I just do all the things. But when they have their first intensely borderline client, they are caught off guard. It always happens. But I'm right there to help them and mentor them through that process. And it takes a long time. And if and many therapists who have their first borderline client do not have someone like me in their corner. They have someone like the person who was leading you in that training who was trained by someone else that had no idea what borderline was or relational trauma was or counter-transference or, you know, object relations or the history of, you know, psychotherapy. You know, we've known how to treat borderline people for like 80 years. <laughs> I did not, you know, invent the general approach to treating borderline. This has been known since the 40s, 
even you could even go back even further. So the fact that we have clinicians that don't understand this is ridiculous. It's it's akin to doctors are still like using leeches or something. I'm just like you realize we've known you know research and written word and literature and like guidance on how to help people with it. Anyway, so I can do all that stuff for my supervisees and they will still have a problem. And the phrase I tell them, and y'all have probably heard me say this before, especially if you're a student or supervisee of mine, you're listening, is that clients come to therapy because they have problems. People go to therapy because they have problems. That sounds like an obvious statement, right? But I say this to emphasize that just because the client's problems are difficult for you as a clinician does not mean you reject the client. If you were in a car accident and you broke 15 bones in your body and you show up at the emergency room and the attending doc is like, this is too much for me. I didn't sign up for this crap. 15 broken bones. I'm overwhelmed. I reject that patient. That patient needs to go home or I, you know, send them to a different ER. That would be ridiculous, right? In the same way. When someone's suffering from a known psychological condition, something we've known about for decades and decades, something that is codified clearly even in the DSM, which is not a good guide of human experience, by the way, but even the DSM describes it. When someone comes into a psychology curative office, such as a psychotherapy office, and they present their borderline in a way that it has been observed since the 20s and 30s and you are predictably dysregulated because of course because that always happens when you have a borderline client and you don't like it and you're like i reject that client because that client is making me feel bad (laughs) why are you in this profession to begin with pal you know, if the ER doc sends someone away with 15 broken bones, dude, why'd you become a physician? When the therapist rejects the borderline client and says, I'm never, I'm never going to treat them. Uh, why did you come up, become an effing therapist to begin with? Now, not everyone has to treat people with personality disorders. That's fine. You know, they're, everyone has their specialties. Um, you know, everyone has their preferences. I've talked about mine before. And we have to think hard about whether or not it's ethical to exclude those people because if we all excluded those people. But you can have your specialty. But just know that it's not because of the patients because you just have a preference. You know, anyway, it's complicated. I've talked with a lot of therapists about every supervisee eventually gets to this point And we will often have many conversations about whether or not they ever want to treat borderline people because every therapist that I've trained goes through a a period of time where they seriously question whether or not not they want to ever treat people with personality disorders because they're they're going through so much emotional pain as a therapist. And 98% of the time, I... Uh, through guy, I never tell the therapist, the trainee, what to do. But through my mentoring and guiding, they eventually come out the other side saying that they absolutely will treat people with borderline um, with open eyes and open arms. But um, 
But some people do. Some people that I've trained do decide, yeah, I just don't think I have the constitution for it, you know, and it's okay. You know, you, you went through it and you, you, you discovered and as, as long as most people don't do that, then we're okay. If 99% of therapists decide they're not going to treat borderline, then what are we doing as a profession? If 99% of emergency rooms turned away people with multiple bone fractures, what are we doing to ourselves? <laughs> like as a profession, there's something wrong with the collective as a profession, right? And I blame training. You know, I don't blame these individuals for having wrong ideas. They were probably given wrong ideas. But anyway, so – but your main question here, Anonymous Patron, is, um, you know, is it standard – to not tell a client that they have borderline. Okay, this is a complicated uh, question. Um, it really depends. So um, uh, here, I'll just tell you what I do. And, and there's a lot of different options available to other clinicians in terms of what they can do. But here's what I do. Is uh, Here's a typical kind of course. Is someone comes into my office, and by session three... I start – so let's say they don't know they have borderline because many people do come to therapy and say, I have borderline personality disorder <laughs> and uh, you know, I need treatment for that. And, and I, I know what my condition is and I know, you know what's going on either through previous therapy or they went on the internet or something. So um, – but let's just say someone comes in. They, they don't know they have borderline, okay? And by session three, I start to feel – not always, but let's just say a typical situation. I start to feel like, hmm – I'm starting to hear some signs of preoccupied attachment, uh, some pretty severe attachment insecurity, reactivity, maybe even some disorganized attachment there. Starting to look at histrionic and borderline, maybe narcissistic. I don't know. Okay, fast forward, session 10. Um, and let's say the client is uh, sensitive. You know, they're like I intuit that if I just drop the diagnosis bomb in therapy that it's really going to hurt them. Like if I, if I session seven say, you know what, there's this thing called borderline personality disorder that there's a chance I'm taking a risk that it's really going to put them off. They're really going to feel stigmatized and otherized, you know? And so I'm not, I don't know what to do because there are certainly some people who will just session seven. They'll be like, you know, Kirk, tell me what's wrong with me. And I'll be like, you want to know what's in my head? And they're like, yeah, I, I want to know. Is there a diagnosis for this? And I'll be like, okay, well, let's talk about it. You know, some people will just ask me anyway. But if they didn't ask, which they don't usually, then I start to, I start using language with them. I use relational trauma. I'll say, well, so what you've told me is that when you were growing up, you were relationally traumatized. You know, you told me this story and this story and this story. You And we can imagine that there are many more stories that you don't remember when you were two, three, four years old. You were traumatized by people who were supposed to be safe. You were abandoned. You were harmed. You were mistreated by people who were supposed to love you. That is a very complicated thing. And the phrase I use for that is relational trauma. You were traumatized through relationships. There's war trauma, there's car accident trauma, there's first responder trauma, and then there's relational trauma, which is early relationships in your life trauma, okay? And because of that trauma, when there's any hint currently, today, of you being relationally traumatized again, your body 
goes into high gear. You go into fight or fight, freeze, appease, or faint response. When your spouse doesn't come home from work, when your spouse goes on a trip and they're not with you, this very much reminds you viscerally of the traumas you went through growing up. When your spouse gets angry at you, this very much reminds you of your mother when you were three years old. And, and you knew that when your mother started to raise her voice, soon after that, that meant trouble. And you are walking around with that PTSD, essentially. But it's relational PTSD. Okay. So those who listen to the podcast and other clinicians, you know that there are other terms I could be using. I could be talking about preoccupied attachment. I could be talking about borderline personality disorder. I could be talking about complex PTSD. I could be talking about other kinds of things. But I'm not. Why? You know, be, well, these are jargon things, you know, relational trauma. I think, you know, with a little bit of explanation, that's an understandable idea. I don't need to explain borderline to people. And. I don't need to ever talk about complex PTSD. Now, if they come to me and they're like, so I heard about this thing on the internet called complex PTSD. Well, okay, then I'll have a conversation if that's what they want. But complex PTSD, it's sort of a, it's a jargony term. Why, you know, I need to educate my clients about the history of these words. No, I can use commonsensical words that make sense to clients. Relational trauma, traumatized by your family. Um, your body goes into fight or flight. You know, I'm 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 explaining it. So I might be taught, and 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 to be clear, I'm not hiding from my clients the fact that they have borderline. I'm explaining borderline to them. I'm just not using the word borderline because why would I need to use the word borderline? Because borderline is it's just a jargon word. It's a tag word for us clinicians to understand what I'm explaining to them. You know. It'd be like if someone came to a physician and they had, you know, uh, some kind of uh, very obscure cancer or something that had a super long Latin name. And the physician's like, well, you have cancer and here, here are the symptoms and here's the treatment and everything. Um, does the physician need to tell the person? And by the way, this is called <laughs> like it's not useful to the client. Plus. Uh, and that's not a great um, analogy because those things usually don't have stigma. But plus, borderline has stigma. So if I tell a client that they have borderline, I better be damn sure that I can manage their potential, you know, Googling of that a term and that it won't create a relationship rupture. You know, that's why I'm going to stick with relational trauma because that's what it is. But, if you know, because if you Google relational trauma – then you're probably not going to find anything horrible. You know, you, someone goes online and is like, I have relational trauma. Well, they're probably not going to read any articles that are terrible. You go on the internet and you say, I, you know, what is borderline? You're going to get potentially some very horrible articles <laughs> that are going to tell you you're a horrible, horrible person. And so I tell people, you know, so there's another situation where I will tell people because – they seem interested or, you know, maybe they did look it up themselves or they said, you know, my spouse said I have borderline. Is that possible? So I said, all right, well, you want to, you know, I've been talking about relational trauma this whole time. But um, if you want to talk about like the DSM language of what we've been talking about so far, yes, the, uh, the DSM it calls borderline. But understand that if you go online and you and you search for this, understand that most of what's on the Internet is not going to be 
helpful and or massively misinformed. This is more per- pertinent to narcissistic personality disorder, honestly. If if you know if when I diagnose people with narcissistic personality disorder, I have to um, be you know I have to give people long um, speeches as clients to. Uh, understand that the internet doesn't know what narcissistic personality disorder is. And so, so that's another thing. So it's possible that the person training, you know, you're saying uh, the lead therapist was talking about, you know, if she thought a patient was borderline, then she wouldn't tell the patient. Well, it's possible that they're worried about the um, uh, stigma that the person is going to read about when they go online. Uh, and then you, you say, you ask another question, um, is this the standard? Um, you know, I don't know the standard around this, honestly. I would say the standard would be to eventually tell the client your conceptualization when you thought the client was ready. Um, and you should not tell a client if you didn't think they were ready for the label. Because you definitely could hurt a client's feelings and you could the client could maybe never come back and you certainly don't want that. Um, but from my experience, uh, every time I've told a client that they have borderline, it has gone fine because I have a good relationship with them up until that point. I explain it in a way that is non-stigmatizing. I explain the internet doesn't understand it, so don't go there necessarily. Um I might even pull out the DSM and read the symptoms and they're like, wow, DS, that book is describing me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so sometimes it can help, you know, for people, you know, for, for those of you listening out there who have borderline and self-identify as having suffering from borderline, I'm guessing a good number of you, if not all of you, find at least some comfort in knowing, oh, this is a thing. I'm not alone. There are other people like me. This is a known psychological condition as a result of trauma and abuse. Okay. You also ask a question, do the patients not have the right to know? Now, this is a complicated question, you know, and the first blush, it's like, well, yeah, of course, clients have the right to know their diagnosis. But again, it has to be balanced with the potential harm that can happen to a client if you tell them any information clinically. And this doesn't just pertain to borderline. It pertains to all sorts of things. But as a rule, I tell myself, I'm on the road to telling my client everything in my mind. I'm, I'm just that sort of therapist. I, I think early on in my career, I just made this decision based on uh, an understanding of my style and, and my values that when in doubt and eventually and definitely eventually, I want my clients to know everything that's going on in my head. I want them to know all the interpretations I have all the different angles of of thought I have, all the different ideas that I have. I guess it might actually go back to my first experience in therapy. I had a very classical psychoanalytic therapist, I think. I'm just, I don't know what his modality was specifically, but he certainly came across that way. He sat all the way in the side of the room behind a desk and he never said much. He just listened and then I kept waiting for him to chime in and you know eventually I after I don't know 5 10 sessions I was like so what do you think about everything I've been telling you and he's like well what do you want me to think you know that kind of classic thing and it's fine it's a, you know it's a perfectly valid way of doing therapy but depending on if you know what you're doing um but I didn't like that <laughs> I was like 
do you have any thoughts? Like, I don't know, just anything, you know, and all the good therapists that I've had since then have been very talkative people and I've asked for that, you know, and so I fit, that's the style that fits well with me. And, uh, I guess that's what I value in people. Plus I find it to be a very trust building thing, you know, for, for me to withhold things from my clients is to, uh, is, is potentially detected by the client and thus, the client will be like, well, he's not really telling me the whole story. You know, there's there things are being withheld. And, you know, so so if I had, you know, say someone comes in and they're like, you know, my husband said I has I have borderline, but I don't have borderline. You know, he has borderline. And then five, ten sessions and I'm like, oh, actually, I think you have borderline. Well, I'm not going to be like, by the way, you have borderline <laughs> because this person has a thing about borderline. And so uh, I'm going to you know, be careful about my words because I don't want to hurt their feelings unnecessarily, you know, or I don't want to hurt their feelings at all, really. But I, so anyway, I don't want to take the risk unnecessarily. And so, but in my mind, I'm thinking, well, eventually, maybe years from now, I'm going to tell this client everything that's in my mind. Now, does border, does the term borderline uh, need to be discussed? Not really, you know, you're just going to have to take my word for it out there that the way I see when I talk about borderline on the podcast, I know I have to use that word because y'all have associations with that word. But when I'm thinking about, you know, I, I have borderline, I've had borderline clients. When I think about them, I don't think about the word borderline. The word borderline is such a simplistic term and it's not very descriptive, right? Borderline, borderline psychotic, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't help me. It doesn't describe the human being. When I'm thinking about the human being, I'm thinking about all the descriptions, you know, the relational traumas and the sensitivity to abandonment and the fight or flight response and the, the making everyone walk on eggshells around them and the countertransference and the distortions, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about all those, all those things. And even then I'm thinking about behaviors and not even the, those kinds of labels at no point when a client sits down, you know, a borderline client, when they sit down on my couch, am I thinking of the word borderline? <laughs> so for, for me to download everything in my head to my client and not say borderline is also consistent with how I think about human beings. You know, uh, the DSM lingo is just a way of justifying payment for services. Uh, not, it's not the only reason for the DSM, but it's the main reason why any clinician, you know, who actually provides services, clinical services, uh, it's the only reason why those words exist is because we need to um, have a way of categorizing people such that we can say these people deserve clinical services and these people don't. It's more complicated, of course. You know, DSM is used for research. It's used for clinical treatment planning and stuff like that. But but I hope that clinicians out there go beyond the DSM. <laughs> like it's a jumping off point. It's a starting point for understanding a human being. It, it is not the it's not the whole thing, right? So uh, so yeah. That's my long answer. And what I'll say is that other clinicians have different approaches. Other clinicians never tell their clients uh, what their full conceptualization is. And that, that's okay, too. It just depends on your style. And everyone has to wrestle with the pros and the cons of that. 
but I believe that clients deserve to know. And if I was a client, I would want to know, even if it bothered me. So that I do unto others, right? Anyway. All right. Well, that does it for that fun episode. It is, um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I have my computer screen to do that thing at night when at 10 o'clock every night it does that changes color to be more red, you know? <laughs> and so in the middle of me, you know, ranting and raving the the screen started to go red. And it, when it, when it starts to go red at first, I, it feels like maybe I, my brain is breaking because I don't notice it because it's very slow. <laughs> it's very, very subtle. Um, but anyway, it's late at night and I want to continue ranting and raving, but I know I should probably kind of wind down and allow myself to fall asleep <laughs> in a, at a reasonable hour so I can wake up tomorrow and podcast even more. <laughs> anyway, um, let me know what you think. You can go to our website, click on the contact page. That's how you can best contact me. That's how these emailers, these people, and by the way, also, you know, if you're an upper tier patron, your emails tend to get preference. Not because I want to, I don't know, be discriminatory, but because lately I've been getting so many emails that I have to, I have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> and I feel like upper tier patrons deserve some kind of, I don't know, preference on some level. I don't know. That seems kind of wrong. I, I do go through everyone's emails and say, oh, I, you know, that question is good. I should include that regardless of whether or not they're a patron or not. Anyway, but when I'm sitting down to do an episode, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, where do I start? And I usually just start with the upper tier patrons. So if you're thinking about upgrading your tier and that's possible in your life, then um, you can do that. Go to patreon.com. <laughs> I don't know. As I say, it just sounds awful. You know, it just sounds like sounds like serving the rich or something. It just can't be right, you know. Um, so maybe I'll change that uh, policy. <laughs> At the end of the episodes, um, you know, sometimes you get this version of me where it's past 10 o'clock and I think my brain is going bad because my screen is suddenly turning red and I'm going, what's wrong with going? And hey, Kirk, why not just talk about that free associate into the microphone? Because, you know, professionalism on a podcast isn't isn't worth anything. Anyway, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 